Merciful God, may we hear your words among us this morning. And may they challenge us, give us ears to hear, that we may go forth into our world and love rightly. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. So sometimes theology comes to us from really surprising places, right? Moments of theological insight might come from talking with a friend or from a movie or a TV show or from a great novel. Has that ever happened to you? And sometimes theological insight comes from the four-on-the-floor and harmony-filled grooves of the Grammy-winning British folk band Mumford & Sons. If we pay close attention to the lyrics of this banjo-twiddling group, we hear something close to a very developed theology of human love. Now, I asked Ryan if he would do a demonstration, and he, and he politely declined, so you're just going to have to settle for me reading the lyrics, okay? The first track of their first album, called Sigh No More, reminds us that our lives are filled with sighing. The troubles of our days, the longings of our hearts, the broken relationships that we encounter all make us sigh, or to use a more biblical word, they make us groan. What causes such sighing croons Marcus Mumford? He says that my heart was never pure and that we are restless to look for satisfaction in all of the wrong things in this life. And in light of these realities, how can we sigh no more? In comes the bass drum, the banjo, and the guitar, and Mumford takes it up an octave, and he says this, sings, I'm going to say it, love, <laughs> love, it will not betray you, dismay or enslave you, it will set you free, be more like the man or woman you were made to be. There is a design, an alignment, a cry for my heart to see the beauty of love as it was made to be. What's going on here? <laughs> After highlighting for us that this world is riddled with sin, that it will always make us sigh, we're reminded that there's something that will actually make our hearts sore. A certain kind of love, but just not any love. A particular kind of love that follows a particular kind of design. A design that will never betray us, dismay us, or enslave us. Not all love is the same. Some love enslaves, some love sets us free. Didn't think you'd get that from a Mumford song, son, right? So these themes show up again in other Mumford and Sons tunes. In Roll Away Your Stone, which is presumably a reference to the stone that was rolled away at the resurrection of Christ, Mumford sings this. See, you told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul, and I have filled this void with things unreal, and all the while my character it steals. Once again, we see a reference to our tendencies to turn our love to all kinds of unreal things and the illusion of securing perfect blessedness. In Awake My Soul, Marcus Mumford reminds us that our hearts are fickle, our eyes are woozy, and both constantly stumble. But then he sings this, in these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. And where you invest your love, you invest your life. And then he says, awake my soul. Why is it so hard and so disappointing when the objects of our love fail us or disappoint us? Because when we love something, we invest our lives in it. 
and we become conformed to that which we love. And that makes loving a pretty dangerous business. We should be attentive to the design of love so that our love will not fail us or enslave us, but will actually set us free. So why am I sharing with you my immaculate taste in music? And, <laughs> and what's with all this love talk? Like Mumford and Sons, St. Paul, it's not, in my mind that, that transition worked better. <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> like Mumford and Sons, St. Paul develops throughout his ministry a theological vision that claims that love plays a central role in the life of believers, in God's life, and in the life of the church. If you've ever been to a wedding, you may have heard Paul's famous statements about the priority of love from 1 Corinthians 13. We might speak in tongues, we might have the gift of prophecy, we might be super duper smart, we might even have a really strong faith. We might give everything we have to the poor, and we might even suffer for our faith. But if we lack love, says Paul, we gain nothing. We are useless. And then after giving us some statements about what love looks like in practice, love is patient, love is kind, all that stuff, right? Paul makes clear the greatest of these is love. Have you stopped to really allow that statement to sink in? Paul is speaking in really broad terms. Even your faith, if it is not accompanied by love, is useless. Faith without love is reduced to a mere get-out-of-jail-free card and ceases to resemble anything like an imaging of God in a broken world. These ideas show up in places, other places in Paul's letters. In Galatians 5.6, he compels us to think that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love, for Paul, is a force that ought to change the world and is doing so now. For Paul, when God the Father sent God the Son into the world, this was an act of great gift-giving. That's what the word grace means, by the way. It just means gift. Now, not all gifts are the same, right? Though we may think that a perfect present in our lives should come with no strings attached, that's not how Paul thinks of presents. For Paul, a perfect present, God's present of Jesus Christ, is one that was given without regard to the worth of the recipient. If we give a gift, we might wonder if we'll inherit some baggage from the person receiving it, right? As folks who live in the Midwest, we all know that Midwestern politeness can quickly turn into a competition for who can be the politest person in the room, right? Charlie Barron's has a great bit on this if you ever wanna waste your time on YouTube. Um, <laughs> But that's not how God thought about giving us the gift of Jesus Christ. For that gift was given while we were still sinners. What that means is that since Jesus was given to us without regard to our worth, we similarly should not look at one another with regard to our worth. All of those worldly standards that measure people to be more or less worthy, more or less dignified, more or less special, more or less precious, have been obliterated in the church by Jesus Christ. All of that, says Paul, no longer counts. 
Not in the space created by the gift of Jesus Christ, anyways. What does count? Faith expressing itself through love. Just as faith was useless without love, the only thing that is not useless is when faith is always partnered up with love. So love seems pretty important to Paul, right? It's the only thing that counts. Not your wealth, not anything that gives success according to the flesh, not esteem from the world. So when we turn to Romans, we find Paul filling out some of the theological details that inform a Christian understanding of love. And one of the most important verses where he does this, Augustine cited it 2,000 times at least. That's not important for you to know, but it's Romans 5.5. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Read it again. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What's going on here? Now suppose I say to you that the following statement. These are the books of Dr. Alice Matthews. What am I saying? Well, it depends. I might be referring to the books that are downstairs that were donated by Dr. Matthews for a church library. Books that once belonged to her. Or I might be referring to books written by Dr. Matthews, books like Gender Roles and the People of God. Much in the same way, when we read Romans 5.5, that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we might be wondering if Paul is talking about our love for God or a love that God himself possesses. See that? The love of God might be our love for God or a love that belongs to God. So which one is it? Any guesses? <laughs> okay. It, see it? Okay. I got to work on my suspense. <laughs> you, all knew, you all knew where I was going. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Literally the most, the next sentence in my sermon is the most controversial thing I'll say this morning. I think it's both. Apparently that's not very controversial at all. So... <laughs> Goodness me. No, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. I think it's both. You think it's both. Let's just cut the, you know, it's all right. It's, jeez. Oh, this is what I get for trying to be clever. All right. It's both a love that exists within the life of God, specifically the Holy Spirit, and that love with which we love God. Why? Because our love for God is made possible only by the presence of God himself in our hearts, right? We can love God with our hearts only if God himself is that love that is in our hearts. God is love, says 1 John 4, 8. And that's why Romans 5, 5 says that God poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts, in order to love God, we need God to pour himself into our hearts. Here's how St. Augustine puts it. Love then, which is from God and is God, is properly the Holy Spirit, through whom the love of God is poured forth into our hearts, through which the whole Trinity dwells in us. Pause on that for just a minute. The whole Trinity in your heart. There's a lot going on in your heart, right? 
God is love and love is from God. And to the degree that God lives in your heart, love lives in your heart. So Augustine, preaching to his congregation, says this. This is one of my favorite lines from Augustine. Let us love God with God. Yes, indeed, since the Holy Spirit is God, let us love God with God. So since God is love and the Holy Spirit has been poured forth into our hearts, we love God with God. Romans 5 through 8 then shows us the primary example of love for us to follow. What is the biggest example of love for us as Christians? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates, exemplifies, commends, proves his love for us by dying on the cross to forgive our sins and to bring us near. The cross is the best example of what love looks like. It takes the ugliest thing in the world, sin, and brings out something beautiful from it, the union with God. And that love holds us close even in the most turbulent of times. Just as God proved his love for us at the cross, God works together all things for our good, even when that is not clear to us, all because he loves us. In Romans 8.28, we see that. Paul goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even cruel people who look to exploit us, like in Romans 8.35. In fact, nothing in all of creation, which is everything, right? Everything. There's nothing, you're either a creature or you're not, and if you're not, you're God, right? So nothing in all creation, include that includes everything, can separate us from God's love, says Romans 8.39. So building up these rhythms of love, we then arrive at chapter 12, where Paul tells us love must be sincere. In that statement, we get a thesis for the whole Christian life that carries with it all of the theological richness that came before it in the letter. Our loves must be sincere loves because that love is the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Because God has demonstrated his perfect love for us at the cross, because that perfect love is not something from which we can be separated, even through the worst pain that we face. Because all of that is true, our lives as Christians must be characterized by a sincere love. Paul then goes on to fill out what a sincere love looks like in Romans 12, 9 through 21, and then goes, we get to our text for this morning in our lectionary, Romans 13, 8 through 14. One of my favorite Bible passages of all time, by the way. And it comes right after he talks about taxes. Right? Love and taxes. All right. It starts by telling us this. Let no debt remain outstanding. Paul begins with a financial metaphor about our obligations. If you owe a debt, then you have the obligation to pay it back, right? If I owe you five bucks, I have an obligation to pay you back five bucks. And if you see me using a fiver to buy a bag of chips, you would understandably be upset, right? Thanks for laughing. No, you're the only one, is it? <laughs> yeah, I would too, right? Yeah. A lot of you are owing people five bucks, it sounds like. Okay. What is our debt, though? What is our obligation to one another as Christians? To love one another, says Paul. 
Anyone doing so, Paul continues, has fulfilled the law. And in this, we hear an echo of the new covenant, the promise God made to take a law that was written on the outside, external to us, and to write it in our hearts. The pouring of the Holy Spirit as love into our hearts coincides with God's writing of the law in our hearts. Whereas the law was on the outside before, love makes the law go inside. And when it, and when it takes root in our hearts, we no longer stand in need of an external law because our delight will be the law of the Lord. Think about it this way. You may have or may not have noticed that I have a four-year-old daughter. She's the one that's always wearing fun patterns and drinking way too much fruit punch. Now, much of my parenting takes the form of external legislation, right? Do this, don't do that, and so on. But that quickly gets exhausting, amen? My end goal is to help my daughter to appreciate in her heart that doing the thing I want her to do is in her genuine interest, will produce her legitimate good, will help her be happier, will be, she'll be prouder of herself, and to develop in ways that are conducive to her becoming a mature person. In other words, it is better for her to have, to be self-invested in her good behavior than it is for me constantly to be reminding her to do this or that. It is better for her to do it from her heart. It doesn't happen often, but it, <laughs> but it's better. <laughs> now, how does this happen? It happens through her loves. It is through a recalibration, like when you go to the mechanic to have your tires recalibrated, right? It's through a recalibration of our loves that we will act rightly. Have you ever wondered why it is sometimes so hard to stop doing a particular sin, even when we desperately want it to stop? Maybe it's just me. No, it's it can be so discouraging, right? It can be so even you want to stop sinning, and you know the sin you want to stop doing, but you just can't. Now, what so often needs to happen is that we need that desire to be replaced with a greater, truer desire. To use Paul's language in Galatians 5, we need the desires of the flesh to be replaced with the desires of the Spirit. Once again, why God has poured out his Spirit upon us in love. Desires for sin need to be replaced by better and truer desires for holiness. And this is what the Christian battle against sin amounts to. We need to love the bad things less by loving the good things more. Now, Paul helps us to see this more clearly when he tells us that the Ten Commandments are reducible to one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not only are the Ten Commandments summarized by the command for neighbor love, but he says whatever other command there may be is also summed up by neighbor love. Why might that be? These negative commands not to do something, can also be expressed as positive commands in terms of love. You shall not murder amounts to loving your neighbor internally so much that you value their lives. You shall not steal is an expression of neighbor love that recognizes that their possessions are to be respected. Coveting detaches something or someone from the life to which it ought to be attached. So we are called to love our neighbor's life. And in the end, because love does no harm to a neighbor, 
All of the commands of the law are summed up in a robust expression of neighbor love. Now, this should both relieve us of great pressure and raises the urgency with which we ought to love. That urgency shows up really clearly in verses 11 through 14. We need to find ways not to gratify the desires of the flesh because, quote, salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The night is almost over. That's encouraging. We can breathe a sigh of relief. But we have to keep hanging on because the day is almost here. So I want to conclude with a reflection of what this Christian vision of rightly ordered love looks like. What does a sincere love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, magnified in the cross of Christ, that fulfills all of the law look like? What does neighbor love look like in a church celebrating 25 years of its existence? What does it look like in the midst of the joy that we share? What does it look like in the midst of the grief that we share? I couldn't possibly say all that there is to be said here, and we spent a long time yesterday talking about it. But let's start here. A rightly ordered, spirit-generated love involves recognizing that your well-being is bound up with the well-being of others around you. Right before he tells us about love, Paul calls the church Christ's body, reminding us that if one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers too. We are connected together, and I cannot flourish if you do not flourish. Love recognizes that the same spirit that is in your heart is the spirit that's in the heart of your neighbor, whose well-being is bound up to yours. You cannot thrive if your neighbor is in anguish. And who is your neighbor? Wrong question, says Jesus. <laughs> Neighborliness is a surprising category that subverts the patterns of relationship that obtain out there in the world. The neighbor is not the person you'd prefer to love, unless you're really lucky. Very often, we must take a Mr. Rogers mindset. Look at the person before you and ask them, won't you be my neighbor? Can I show you love? Can I care for you? I see you're having a hard time. Will you take up some space in my life and share with me why? And the beauty about Paul's perspective on love is that it is a seed that can blossom in a million different directions. It's the root of all the commandments, so it's flexible enough to fit our needs. Sometimes love shows up as sending a card when a loved one passes away. Sometimes it's a willingness to sit and listen to someone for a long time as they work through their anger. Sometimes it's opening yourself up to allow someone to tell you how you may have hurt them. Sometimes it's having the courage to tell someone how they hurt you. Sometimes it's knowing what can help someone and then just doing it so that they don't have to ask. Oftentimes it's having the compassionate patience to play the long game, allowing someone the space not to open up just now or allowing them to be frustrated and hurt by something that happened a long time ago and then not saying, you're not over that by now. It's living together in a way that is sensitive to what makes us afraid, what makes us safe, what gives us purpose, what makes us feel like we belong. With rightly ordered love, says Marcus Mumford, we will not be disappointed, but, he says, 
We will run and scream. You will dance with me. They'll fulfill our dreams and we'll be free. And we will be who we are. They'll heal our scars. Sadness will be far away. I will love with urgency, but not with haste. I like to think here that the they that Mumford talks about in the song, not with haste, is the Holy Trinity. The odds are small, but... (laughs) But God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will fulfill our dreams, will free us, will heal us, will cast sadness far away, for the Holy Trinity dwells in our hearts. So let us love God with God as we love our neighbor with God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.